The bravest that we can be is vulnerable at the feet of Jesus. In the midst of this evening, Jesus gathered together at Simon's house. And I can imagine the noise, the talking, the laughter even, and Mary coming in with this expensive alabaster jar. And the room grows silent, and she breaks the bottle, and she anoints Jesus, washing his feet with her hair. Pulled down, very inappropriate for that time. And yet, she is blessing her Savior by being vulnerable at the feet of Jesus. The silence that fell in that room. I wish I could be there to hear the conversation between Jesus and Mary. Or maybe at the conversation before at Mary and Martha's house and what Jesus must have said when Mary sat at his feet for her to bring this jar and anoint him with a year's worth of wages. What does the silence between her and her Savior tell us about Mary? What can we gather? We can gather from Mary's life that she is a sinner, a great sinner, but that she loves greatly, and that there is no offering too expensive for her to lay it at her Savior's feet. In the silence, in the midst of your busy life, in my busy life, in the midst of many people or a few people, when you're with Jesus, what does that say about your life? What is Jesus revealing to you about who you are? Maybe a great sinner. Maybe someone who loves greatly. What does it say? What revelations and what themes is God revealing to Mary in that silence? And what is he revealing to you in the silence between you and him? Those are the great questions as we have talked about prayer for the last few weeks. What does the silence between you and your Savior mean? As the deacons come forward with the emblems of our communion, I ask you this question again. The silence between you and the Savior, as the silence between Mary and Jesus, even in the room full of busy people. I pray that in the midst of that silence between you and your Savior, that God will not only reveal to you who he is, but also who you are. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was intentional in spending time with his disciples breaking bread. Jesus valued community, and when there's food, there's usually community. 
where I come from, there cannot be a social gathering without food. Going out to friends, uh, with friends and family, there always has to be some kind of food. We, when we share a meal together, we have a good time. There's something about good food with good friends. And my theory is that because it engages all of our senses and it moves us to be present in the moment, it is indeed a beautiful and meaningful experience. In the Last Supper, Jesus was intentional in showing his disciples that no matter what was about to happen, there's hope in his sacrifice because by his wounds we are healed. The salvation plan gives you and me a clear window in the heart of the Father, the heart and the character of our God. His love is expressed through selflessness and selflessness is shown by servant leadership. While the disciples were thinking about avoiding this humiliating task of washing each other's feet, the Almighty Creator of the world Himself washed the dusty feet of His disciples without even thinking twice about it. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus already had offered Himself for you and for me. He didn't have to think twice about it. While Judas was thinking about the betrayal that he was about to commit, Jesus spent time and broke bread with him and showed him unconditional love. That's the God that we serve. In the Jewish culture, it was really customary to have a blessing for the bread before every family meal. And it had the purpose of emphasizing the provisions of God, past, present, and future. The blessing usually ends with these words, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. In that culture... When bread was broken, bread was shared. And Jesus brings the idea of sharing the bread, God's provision, and it connects it with a bigger mission, the mission of Him being the provision, Him being salvation for all humanity. The salvation plan is God's provision for you. Then Jesus prays for the fruit of the vine. And in this other customary blessing, the emphasis lies on the reality of God's creation and God's redemption. We are created at His image, and we were redeemed, and Israel was redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. They were no longer slaves. And this blessing for the, for the fruit of the vine ends with these words, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Jesus this amplifies this meaning and makes it a deeper experience now, considering that His blood, and by His blood, we are able to receive justification and sanctification. Justification is God seeing us as we will never have sinned. And sanctification is a life in tune with our original purpose. Communion. It's a great moment to reflect in Jesus' sacrifice. He shed His blood to restore you back to the original value that you had to get you back to His image so you can fulfill what you were created for. Today in Christ, we're able to experience salvation. And communion, it's a powerful symbol that keeps us connected with that reality. The sound of broken bread is the sound of God's provision. Following Christ's example, when bread is broken, we become selfless servants. And we are uni united as a community 
proclaiming the kingdom of God. By the end of this passage, we see that Jesus mentions a promise pointing out to the day where we will drink from that grape juice. When he comes back for you and for me. But let me tell you something today. The experience of closeness with God can be a reality by faith. Today, my friends, we have access to the throne of God because of Christ's merits. Let's now participate of this communion experience. If you have your emblems, this experience, by the way, is open to everybody that believes in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. Dear God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you because you're loving, graceful, kind, and merciful. It is because of that, God, that we have hope. You provide hope to our lives in order to walk this day by day, this journey here on earth. God, thank you for giving yourself in order for us to be part of this new covenant. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Thank you because you provide peace and freedom through Christ. In Jesus, we are redeemed. We are no longer what we used to be. We are free. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. The famous Prime Minister Winston Churchill had it right when he said, Speech is silver. Silence is golden. Sometimes words could be said, but they shouldn't. They get in the way, or maybe they're just not needed. In regards to this specific story here in the Passion of Jesus, only Mark records this particular silence of Jesus on this particular question, perhaps because Jesus is being attacked and he's tempted to defend himself, and Peter always took opportunity to defend himself. And as the chief contributor to the Gospel of Mark, perhaps he found that significant. Who is Jesus having to defend himself to? Pontius Pilate. Pontius reigned for over 10 years in Judea, and he'd been known to sentence people to death for very minor crimes. History implies that he squelched uprisings so violently, in fact, that he himself ended up being taken to Rome and being on trial years later. Pilate's repeated questioning of Jesus and efforts to acquit him or simply slap him on the wrist have caused speculation. Was it the resurrection of that man named Lazarus from his tomb that got Pontius wondering, thinking about this man called Jesus? Was it Christ's calm demeanor in the midst of that raucous crowd in contrast to that that caused him to wonder? Let's talk about that crowd for a second. It's ironic to me that they wouldn't enter the praetorium for fear of religious defilement, but yet they were comfortable literally killing their creator God. Mm. The time where Jesus is silent here adds weight to all the other times when he was not. Ironically, Jesus stood accused of doing exactly what he refused to do, which was taking a political stand against Rome. It's almost if Pilate was teasing him here. Give me one good reason, Jesus, to believe you right now. Prove yourself. And Jesus refused to cower to his demands for a sign or a miracle. This moment is validation of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know it. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to keep 
silent and a time to speak. Jesus understood what the fictional character Jacob the baker stated when he said, it's the silence between the notes that makes the music. But it's more than just that. Much more. This particular pause is prophetic. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. When yelled at, when accused unjustly, our lamb stood in eloquent silence. Three times in this secretive trial, Jesus remained silent. Once before the Sanhedrin, and mentioned in Mark 14, when he was accused falsely. Here in this moment, in Mark 15, and later in John 19, when he's brought back to Pilate, bloodied and beaten, and Pilate asks Jesus, where are you from? It's a terrible thing to be faced with truth and holiness and feel frozen or trapped. Spineless Pilate felt just that way at that moment. He was convicted of something about this man, but he didn't have the courage to make the right choice. This dramatic pause in the story of Good Friday challenges us to imitate the mind of Christ in our self-understanding and in our actions as well. One commentator puts it this way. He says, when seeking to help someone, we must exercise care on what would be beneficial to that hearer. Jesus knew no amount of discussion would change their hearts and it would trample what is sacred. So many times we're more concerned with just being right than in winning lost souls. It's not about us. It is all about Him. Jesus knew who He was, and we too as believers should realize that we are children of the King and behave as such. We do not need to prove our royalty with words. We need to manifest our royalty by loving actions. End of quote. You see, debates don't solve much, do they? Nobody truly wins an argument and the best character defense is really a kind action or the boasts of other people, not your own words. While Scripture is clear that we should be ready to defend our hope and our faith in Jesus to the world around us, we are not called to answer every question that comes our way. We are not expected to change every flaw or improper belief system around us. So, when the spouse tests you on that for better or worse you agreed upon, <laughs> in your marriage vows, and all you want to do is yell out their short, his or her shortcomings as well. Mm. When you're berated at work for something that you had no part in, or when your loving actions towards your aging parents are misinterpreted, maybe even rejected, and you're accused instead of selfishness, don't take it personal. Breathe in deeply. Have the quiet, peaceful, calm fortitude that our silent lamb, our loving Savior had. Jesus, help us in those moments to practice the sound of silence. Five sounds, that's it. In that six hour, five sounds. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, the quote from Psalm 22. 
Then you have the people chattering. Hey, he's calling for Elijah. Maybe he can save him. The third is his loud cry and his last breath. The fourth is a veil that's torn from top to bottom. And then the fifth is a pagan, a Gentile, a centurion. In these five sounds, two of them say that he cried with a loud voice. Now, if you've ever read the, the JAMA article, the Journal of the American Medical Association article, the reason people would die via crucifixion was because they couldn't breathe. And so because of the excruciating pain along the nerves, they didn't want to pull themselves up and let themselves down for respiration. So this loud cry, either it wasn't as loud as we think it is, and people were listening, or he went through excruciating pain to make them. And as they hear, I wonder if it's a mixture of both, as they hear, they hear Elijah. And they sort of mock, they bring him the vinegar, or the, the sour wine. He cries his last breath. And then you hear this tear. Now, if any of you have torn a piece of paper, which is easy, but then tried to tear a book, which are many pieces of paper, it's hard. Now, we don't quite have a definitive answer to how thick this veil was, but in this temple, tradition is taught that it was about the thickness of a man's hand. That's pretty thick. Some believe it was about 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and it was fabric woven together. And so for this to be torn, somebody had to hear. The sad thing is that you hear sounds from all over, from Jesus, from the people, from the veil, from a Gentile, but there's one who is silent, God. Because the question that Jesus poses in the beginning is, God, where are you? Why have you left me? And I do believe that God answers here, but sadly, Jesus already passes. And he answers through a veil that is torn, and finally he answers through a Gentile who says this, surely this man was the Son of God. Because God's answer would not really affect Jesus 
God's answer is to you and to me. Surely this was the man, the son of God. This is our testimony. The Lord has spoken. The world is darkest and quietest just before the dawn. Sure, the silence was deafening as a small group of women made their way to the tomb. Ringing in their ears were the sounds from what had happened that week. The sound of an alabaster box being broken and perfume poured out. The sound of broken bread. Sound of silence the one they loved stood accused and then the sounds of death all of their hopes all of their dreams were locked behind a big stone blinded by unfulfilled expectations they hadn't paused long enough to even think about who would roll the stone away all they knew was their desire to honor the man who had changed their lives forever. There's a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. It's an invitation to come and see. Over and over, it's articulated in the passages of Scripture that people come and see. Come and see, it's a constant refrain. And for the final time, they would come, they would see, and they would honor. But in that early dawn, as the light of the sun began to eat at the edges of the darkness, the stone was gone. The tomb was empty, speechless, they took in the words echoing loudly in the quiet of that stone sepulcher. He is not here. He is risen. Go and tell. As the sun rose that Sunday morning, the sun had risen. The world would now march to the beat of a different drum. In the deafening silence of an empty tomb, the gospel resounded the loudest. Go and tell. He's risen. Plan complete. Come and see has now become go and tell. And today we too stand in the empty tomb. We can see where he should have been but we rest confidently knowing where he actually went. Yet as much as the empty tomb is a symbol of an enemy conquered and a plan complete, it resounds as an invitation to go and tell. We've seen, we've heard, 
Now the story must be shared. Go and tell, go and tell. He's risen, he's not here. Go and tell the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives way to eternal life. What at first appeared to be an ending will go down as the most beautiful beginning in all of history. What looked like defeat was victory for eternity. And what we are left with, an empty cross, an empty tomb, is the commission to go and tell. Maybe you've experienced, maybe you have experienced deafening silence this week. Don't know where to turn, don't know where to go. Somehow, God takes those moments, gets our attention, says, I've got a purpose, I've got a meaning, I've got a place for you to go, and I've provided the means of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate when we look at an empty cross and an empty tomb. So I invite you today, no matter what you come here with, you leave with the commission to go and tell. The journey has just begun. And maybe, just maybe, the end that you felt this week was an opportunity for a beautiful new beginning. As we close today, I have some of our junior ushers in the back that'll be receiving an offering for community services. I invite you, if God's put something on your heart, to, to, to put something in uh, for those that are in need in this community. To close, I invite you to stand as we pray. Please stand. Holy Father, today we're thankful for the quiet for the silence. Sometimes it's deafening. Sometimes it's insurmountable. You used the quiet and the silence a couple thousand years ago to let us know exactly what your love for us is. So today, Lord, our praise rises. We're thankful for the cross, for the empty tomb. And today, as we have come and seen, God, now may we go and tell. The world is in need of a message of hope and of love. God, may your spirit rest upon us. And may we be the messengers that bring good news to all the world. God, we love you. And we look forward to seeing you soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Go and tell in grace and peace.